Thanks, Michelle. And I would echo that. Um, I'm looking forward to the dinner this this Thursday. And uh, we got I, we got to know Bao from Vietnam the last couple of years, who's now graduated. And so I, I think it's just an opportunity God opens the door for. This morning, we are going to be tackling Psalm 73, and we're doing a few things just a little different. Is I'm it's a long scripture. So I'm going to kind of read it in chunks and go through it rather than read it all at the beginning. And then the other thing that's a little different is I, I chose to use the NIV version rather than our normal ESV. And when we get to the part, I'll, I'll share why. It just I think the NIV is actually a little more understandable on this psalm, and it's the one where I've really um, dug into it. So so we'll begin, begin with telling you what it's about. Psalm 73 is about a man facing doubts, questions. It's uh, Asaph is the psalmist. He was in the time of King David, and he worked in the tabernacle. Uh, basically, he was a worship leader. So he wrote music, and psalm, the psalms are actually songs that were written for, for, as prayers and for worship. And so the, the challenge is, is he is a worship leader who himself is doubting, is facing doubts. And we're going to dig into that. But oftentimes God will give me an extra illustration just a few days before a sermon. And so I was mowing the lawn and I was listening to a podcast by Sean McDowell. It's called Thinking Biblically. And so Sean McDowell talked, told about how when he was in college, he was starting to have some doubts. He was raised as a Christian, and he goes to his dad and says, Dad, I'm not sure I'm convinced this Christianity is true. Now, here's the thing. Does does Sean, does the last name McDowell sound familiar to any of you older Christians? Yes. (laughs) He is Josh McDowell's son. So his father, if he is one of the most famous apologists of like 30 years ago, like at the book that Josh McDowell wrote was called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Every Christian I knew read, read that book because it was talking about the evidence so that we can be convinced that this is true. So how would Josh McDowell, the famous apologist, handle when his own son now says he is having doubts? He was worried about telling his dad. Well, his dad um, said, his dad's response was, I love you no matter what, and it is good you are asking these questions. Seek after the truth. And he, Sean talked about how he gave him space to figure it out. And in the end, Sean worked through those questions. He faced down the doubts, and he himself now is an apologist, a defender of the faith, with a podcast and working for a Christian college, Biola. His faith, his faith came out stronger because he worked through the doubts. So that's the opening for this morning. Let's begin in Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So verse 1 is a simple affirmation. God is good. 
right? We sang that song. God, we're, we're, it's a, it, God is good. But the question is on the table is, is that true, right? He's affirming it to begin with, but then verse 2 says, but, you know, so that is actually going to be the, the very thing that Asaph starts to doubt. What I've noticed in society is so many don't see God as good, right? They don't see Christianity as good. And, and it seems to me they, they don't know God. They, they might know things about God. They might know verses from the Bible, but they often have this wrong picture of what God is like. And, and wherever they've gotten it, they have misconceptions or wrong interpretations of the Bible, or maybe they've had a bad experience at, at church or they were taught badly. Um, I want to say, how do we really know God is good? How do we really know what God is like? God has given us a very clear way to see him. There's a verse in John that says, we cannot see God. No one can see God. But nevertheless, God made himself known through his son, who is the very image of the invisible God. God sent Jesus so we can see what God is like up close and how he handled himself, how he treated people, and how he responded. So whenever I start to wonder, is God good? I I know the, the, the most important thing is Go back to Jesus. Look closer at him. There are things in the Bible that are hard to understand. I get that. But don't don't let those things remove the the core truth that Jesus Christ shows us what God is really like, and he is good. Now, for Asaph, this is he's writing before Jesus came. So he's saying, Surely God is good, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. This psalm is actually a confessional psalm. Asaph is owning up to a struggle in his own heart, and he tells you what that struggle is. Envy. When I saw how the, the wicked, the, the people are doing, you know, they're, they're prospering, it caused me to doubt, is God really good? Can I do it? And he's, he's struggling with this. I'll note one thing. I think God wants him to struggle with it. I think God wants us to struggle with some of these questions. And you know why? It said in verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel. Israel is the name of the, the people of the Old Testament. But you know what Israel means? Ones who struggle with God. That is the, that's the, God, the name God gave to his people in the Old Testament. The ones who struggle or wrestle with God. It could be translated as wrestle. So, yes, we have to wrestle with it. God wants us to think it through because he knows the truth is there. And if we get a hold of the truth, we'll, we'll be stronger for having wrestled through it. So, so he's struggling with envy, and envy is a two-part feeling. It's, it has to do with us, but also has to do with someone out there, right? We see what someone else has. We see their thing, and then we want it. Right? We want what they have. We're not content with what we have. It's possible to see that someone else has something really good and be, that's, that's great. I'm glad you have that. But when there's this deficiency in our own heart, then when we're not content with what we have on our own, that's when envy can, can get a root in our heart. And so that's the, the struggle 
that Asaph is dealing with. Let's turn to verses 4 to 12 as he describes more about the wicked. So starting in verse 4. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Uh, This is the section, by the way, for which I chose the NIV because I think it describes, the NIV captures what the wicked are like better. So, So how does Asaph describe the wicked. When you think of the word wicked, what comes to mind, right? The wicked witch of the West or East, which or there are two of them, right? Um, they were sisters. Uh, or you think of a supervillain, you know, Lex Luthor or someone like that, or, or a serial killer. I mean, when you think of wicked, you think of someone wholly given over to evil. This is the picture you have in your head. But That's not the picture Asaph is painting of the wicked, is it? In fact, I wonder if this picture better captures what he's describing. Go next slide, Mark. Right? Does does the wicked describe more like the celebrity culture? Right? Someone who's getting out of a limo onto the red carpet. Let's think about this. What does he say about the the wicked in the, the... in this version, it says, they have no struggles, right? Life is easy for them. They, they're healthy and physically strong and attractive. They are free from pain and burdens, right? They're, they, they're free from the common human burdens. They're not like the rest of us who have troubles in life. They, they have it easy. They're not plagued by human ills, right? So, um, so therefore, pride is their necklace, Right? They're, they're just proud of who they are and what they've accomplished. They have, they have calloused hearts. They clothe themselves with violence. It says they have no limits on, on conceiving evil. They can imagine and they can think, whatever I can imagine, I can do. They scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance, and, and they threaten oppression. Um, is a boasting. It says they, their mouths lay claim to heaven. They boast about what they've, they've done or, or what they can do. And then bragging. So they boast about what they can do. They brag about what they've already done. With their mouths, they take possession of the earth. Um, it talks about how they're admired, right? The people turn to them, look to them. And then it says they drink in abundance. This sounds like to me it's describing the, the celebrities that our culture lifts up. Whether it's, you know, the movie stars getting on the red carpet or a successful businessman or, you know, pastors who sell lots of books, you know, whatever it is, it, it's that, that um, celebrities that people say, these are the important people in the world. But there's a problem in this. What does it say about their, their attitude towards God, verses 11 and 12? They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything Right? It's, it's, it's not saying so much they're against God. 
It's saying that God does not matter. God doesn't, you, you could do whatever you want, right? God's, God's not really watching or caring what we do. You can get away with it. You know, how would God know if I've done this or this or this? God is far away. He's irrelevant to the situation. That's their attitude towards God. It's if God is mentioned, and this often is in our celebrity culture, right? If God is mentioned at all, it's as a generic benevolence. God, he, he or she loves all people and never judges. So what we do in life doesn't really matter. There is no right or wrong. And so they're free of care, amassing wealth and living and enjoying the best of this world. Asaph's heart, he's envying them. Right? Oh, I wish I could be like that. Can you relate to Asaph? And that, that envy of thinking, oh, wouldn't it be great to, to have all that, to have the perfect house, to have no cares, to travel the world and all those great things? Let's look at the next part. How, how does this respond? How does it play out in Asaph's heart? Verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and, wa- and have washed my hands in innocence All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. So so catch what he's saying. He's saying, all that I have done to try to follow God and do what is right. Remember, Asaph is a servant at the tabernacle. He's He's a man of God. He's trying to live for God and follow God's word. And he's saying, is that in vain? In vain have I kept my heart pure, and all the time of learning God's word and trying living it out, having washed my hands in innocence, was that, was that for nothing? You know, the arrogant and the prideful, they don't worry about their stuff, and their life looks great, right? They're getting away with it. My life, he says, I'm afflicted, I'm poor, um, every, every morning brings new problems. If God is really there, why hasn't he blessed me? Why doesn't my look, life look more like theirs? And you're, we're seeing how not only is the envy in his heart, it's, it's causing him to be miserable, it's also putting up a barrier between him and God, is it not? Right? Now he's, he's, that resentment is aiming towards God. His, his envy put a problem between him and, his, and the Lord. And he's questioning, is devotion to God worth it? His mind is filled with doubt, and his heart is in the mud and mire. And then verse 13, uh, 15, I'm sorry, I think this is, it says, if I had spoken out like that, or if I had spoken thus, I would have betrayed your children. What's he saying? He's saying if, if he would have aired these doubts and talked about it, think of what, what Asaph's job is. He's a worship leader. He's the one trying to lead other people to God. So if he would have said, oh, I, don't, I don't know if all this is true, how, how would that have affected the people coming to worship? You know, let's pick on Chantel for a minute, right? So suppose Chantel has one of those mornings, and she's like, I'm not sure if any of this is true anymore. Oh, but I got to lead worship today. You know, so suppose she gets up here and says, well, I guess we should sing these songs. I just don't know if it matters or not. You know, like, she can't do that. I hope she can't. <laughs> I'm sure she wouldn't. She's a woman of faith. But, but, but think, 
about it, like, that would be a betrayal. Now, nevertheless, it's what he's feeling inside. Does he, does he just put on a show? Does he fake it? Fake it till you make it? Is that a thing? Right? You, you, do you just put a brave face on all this and deny your doubts and stuff them in, in, in your inner despair deep down inside so no one can see and just put on a happy face and talk about how great everything is? You can see why he says, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. What does he do? Let's go to verse 17. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when no one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. So he's facing doubt and questions. But instead of running away from God, he runs toward God. It says he goes to the tabernacle. He goes to seek after God. He brings the problem he's dealing with to God himself to seek God's answer. And I think that's the big thing with with doubts, right? There's two ways to respond. You just run away from God and say, well, forget it, obviously I don't want any of that. Or you can use your doubts and run to God and seek God's answer for them. And that's what we see with Asaph. He comes to the sanctuary. He brings all of himself, his heart, his questions, his fears, his doubts, and he shows up before God. And in the midst of this, God gives him understanding. God enables him to see. God speaks to his heart, and it says, till God had showed me something. And... and um. Yes, yeah, so God gives him a vision. And what, is, what, is, what does it see? What does God show him? It says, those who look like they're doing good outwardly, that is a dream. That's a false thing. The, the perfect and problem-free life is a fantasy. It's a dream. It says, they're actually on slippery ground. Right? They are in a dangerous place. They think they're doing okay, but, but they are they are on the edge of a cliff and they could fall off to destruction at any time. And don't you see that when you do think of go back to the celebrity lifestyle and all the, the rich and famous, how often are they plagued with divorce, lawsuits, destructive behaviors? How many of them die of drug overdoses? How many of them are chronically unhappy Right? They're not people to be envied. There might be things we just don't know, whether it's a celebrity or not, that on the outside they look good, but they could be overloaded with debt. There could be broken relationships in their life or dysfunction in their family. There could be hidden abuse or covered over pain. They're putting a smile over the pain they feel inside. There could be overwork and stress or insecurity and anxieties. Maybe they they look outwardly confident, but inwardly they're a mess. And of course, there could be addictions or or brokenness of all sorts or just plain unhappiness, right? Those who seem to prosper, 
might not have it together as we think. I actually have a picture from my youth of this. When I was a kid, and when we, we went to Disney a couple times, and, and my, one of my favorite places in Disney was the Haunted Mansion. And so if you ever go there, they bring you into an ante room. And I don't want to give away too much in case you ever go there. But so they have these portraits on the wall, and I'll show you one of them. So you see this portrait like of a guy who looks like a wealthy businessman who, you know, looks like it's all together. But as, you, as you're in this room, the walls stretch, and you see the fuller picture. And so by the end, you see, oh, he's not so, in such a good spot after all. They're actually, he's just sitting on the shoulders of his friends, and they're all in quicksand, right? So it's this idea of what you see, may, there may be more to the story that's really out there. And so that's the situation with, with, with Asaph. And, and so he had been envying the, these rich and prosperous who were actually in a dangerous territory. And, and, and so he gives thought to his, himself and he says, I, I, was, I was senseless and ignorant. My heart was grieved and my spirit embittered. I was, I was like a brute beast. In other words, he was thinking in a worldly sense. He was thinking, not, not thinking spiritually, not thinking in light of God's truth. He was thinking about it purely from a, a physical animal perspective. And he needed to get God's perspective. And now God has spoken. And, and now he could see things in this different way. And so you get verse 23. That's right. I, I was like a brute beast, but yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. He didn't run from God. He ran to God. And what did he discover? Like the prodigal son, he discovered that, that God was running to him all along. That God had a hold on him. I, this is an amazing verse. He wasn't sure he could hold on to God, but God did not let him go. It says, you hold me by your right hand. You can imagine, a, 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 a think of, when your children are young and you're a father and you're crossing a busy street, imagine you're crossing Route 50 and you, you have to get across and your, your child's, you know, the, the child says, hold my hand, hold my hand. Are you going to trust that they're going to hold strong enough? No. As a father, you're going to grasp their, their hand super tight to make sure they get across safely. Right? That's what I hear in this verse. You hold me by my right hand, by your right hand. Our emotions, friends, can go up and down, right? Doubt sometimes can be a, a matter of the mind and thinking, but so often, and in fact, I think more often, doubt is, is something we feel more than uh, being led away by intellectual currents. It's an emotion that grabs us, right? And we, we have to deal with that emotion, and the Lord can help us I, there's a great hymn. In fact, we're going to play it later. But here's, here's the, the key verses from it. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We offer to God ourselves, Lord, hold on to me, so that in those ups and downs that I go through in life, I could trust that you're actually holding on to me through it all. So let's go to our last section of verses, and we see that Asaph doubt and despair has turned to praise. He says, you guide me with your counsel, 
and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell all of your deeds. Doubt is a funny thing. And I talked about how doubt sometimes intellectual, but oftentimes sometimes it's emotional. I also know that what people doubt tends to change. I listened to another pad, 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 podcast with Sam Alberry. And that's what I do. I listen to Christian podcasts while I mow the lawn. And, uh, and he, was, he, worked in, he was an evangelist who worked in Ravi Zacharias' ministry, and he talked about that. But, but he said something interesting. He said that the, the doubts that people are facing have changed from the, from, his, from the beginning of his ministry till now. It says it used to be in the 90s, and I, can, I totally was thinking the same thing. In the 90s, we doubted, you know, well, we knew Christianity was good, we just didn't know if we wanted to be in on it, right? You know, Christians were kind of the goody two-shoes. We wanted to have more fun. Like, that was more the attitude in the 90s. That's what people doubted. Do I really want to become a Christian and miss out? It says nowadays the doubts are, are flipped. Nowadays people wonder, are, is Christianity good at all? And so the things that people doubt tend to change. And maybe even as we went through Asaph's story, his particular doubts may not have resonated with you. But, but there are other things that the doubts we have do change over time. I, I just want to say I, I faced doubts at the start of my walk with Christ. Um, I became a Christian in my teen years. I went from being skeptical God existed to being convinced because God um, conveyed himself to me. God, God showed up and spoke to me in my heart, not visibly or anything. But two days later, I got hit by incredible doubt. And basically what I was wondering was, was that real? Or is that wishful thinking? And I remember waking up. I was actually still with the, the youth group. It was a young life trip. Um, and we were, still, we were staying in Ocean City, New Jersey. We had left the camp where I came to faith. And we were in Ocean City. We were going to do one day at the Boulder Rock. And so I got up before everyone else, and all this was going on in my head. And the way I responded is I, to, to being upset in my, in my mind, is I, I would go run. I used to be a runner. Now I'm a cyclist. But, and and I, I, when I'm really stressed out, I run really far. And so that's what I, I started. Now, mind you, my, my leader didn't know I was doing this. I got up before everyone else, left the hotel, started running on the Atlantic, or not the, the Ocean City Boulevard, Boardwalk, and when the boardwalk ended, I kept running. I ran for an hour um, out and then had to run back. Probably did 15 miles total. But the, the whole time I'm going through, is that real? Can, can, is God really there? And, and I went through that, and I, I could not come to any re- resolution on, the doubt, on, on those doubts. And this, this could have shelved my entire faith, my new faith. It was a brand-new Christian. And finally, at the end, God brought me to this place. He says, if it's real, you'll know in six months. Try it and see. If it's not, you'll know, and you'll know in six months. Right? Just, just give it a try. If you, you'll never know if it's true unless you try it. And the voice from God was right. 
After six months, my faith had become on more solid ground, and I knew it was true. I knew it experientially because God was in my life. I've had doubts since then, but truth be told, it's never really been doubts that God is real, that God is there. Usually my doubts are more about, am I hearing God rightly? Uh, do I have right what I understand you know, on this issue? But I have known since then because I faced that one at the beginning. There are six reminders here at the end of Psalm 73, six truths, really, that I find helpful. I want to hold on to, and I think we can hold on to, that God says. And so let me give you these real quickly. One is, God is faithful and will hold on to us through our ups and downs. Everyone goes through ups and downs. Our feelings go up and down. But, but God is faithful. And he can hold on to us through them. The second truth and reminder says, God will lead us even when we are not sure of the way. Verse 24 says, you guide me with your counsel. Right? God, you know, sometimes we wonder, is God leading me or am I just making choices on my own? But God does lead us. He can guide us even when we're not sure of the way. The third truth, the reminder says in, in verse 24, and afterwards you will take me into glory. When life, this life comes to an end, we will be with Christ in glory, right? If we have him in our life, it, it, it's when we lay down the labors, it says we enter his rest, we enter his presence. So think about it. What's the worst thing that could happen? You die and you enter paradise, right? That well, that's, that's not, okay, I can, I can handle that. Like, if you have Christ, that's the worst thing that can happen. That, that settles our heart a little. Four, fourth reminder, truth. Jesus has shown himself trustworthy. My life is better in his hands. So the, the verse is, um, whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. Now, that's not saying there's not things I don't, you know, we don't desire on earth. It's just saying we've, we've figured out Jesus is better than those things. And our life is better when we're in his hands. And then the, the fifth truth. This is this great verse. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. My salvation does not depend on how strong I am. It's only dependent on his sacrifice for me that truth that, that ultimately, because Jesus gave his life to, to free us from sin, his sacrifice, it was his strength. When in the garden, he said, not my will, Father, but thy will be done. And he agreed and went to the cross. He did that for our salvation. And that's the basis by which we are saved. So God is the strength, not us. Our heart and our flesh at times will be in the dumps. But he holds on to us. He is us. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the truth. And then the sixth truth is, is the last couple of verses. This is those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. Let me, let me summarize that as the Lord will deal with the wicked. It's not our job. right? That we don't have to worry about that. And, and I would suggest, if we're looking at this end, we actually see the gospel message in a nutshell. So, 
So those who are far from you, um, it says, you will destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. And then later it says, I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. You see, the problem is not just the wicked out there. The truth is all are wicked. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's easy to see that the wickedness, the, the sins and failings of others. But the truth is, is all of us have, have done that. And so we need a refuge because we're all going to face judgment over how we've lived our life, over the things we've done, the harms that we've committed, the, the failings. If we, if, if we had to stand before God based on our good deeds, friends, no one could enter eternal life. But the good news, the gospel message, is that there is a refuge. There is a way through, and that is relying on the Son of God, Jesus, who bore our sins on our behalf. He became our refuge, our, our, our place of safety, because, because he, he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He freed us from the guilt and the, 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 the stuff of sin in our life by, by giving his life on our behalf. And because of that, we can know we are in him and we, are, we have refuge in our sovereign Lord. It says, I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. Is that true for you this morning? Have you made Jesus your refuge? Have you said, Lord, I know I've sinned. I know I've fallen short. I know my life is a mess at times. I know my heart can be weak. And I know I, I, I fall flat on my face. But, but Lord Jesus, I believe you gave your life for me on the cross. And I want to trust my life to you. That, that offers here this morning. Right? You can make that decision right here and right now to trust your life to Jesus Christ. It, you might call it becoming a Christian, or you could just say, I, I've, I've put my faith in Christ, I've become a follower of Christ. However, the, the, the way you say it, it's entrusting yourself into him, and it's coming into that refuge. And that's what we see of, with Asaph at the end. Where, and he ends it with, I will tell of your deeds. Right? That's what I want to do this morning. I want, I want you to know that the offer of Jesus Christ is out there and, and he can help you work through the, the doubts and the, the questions that you have and you can come to a place where you are um, in him and we have eternal life in him. That, that's what we need to have. And when we come to communion this morning, that's what we're coming to, to declare. In a sense, we're declaring what Jesus did and how we have salvation in his name and in his name alone. And so we're going to come and share at the Lord's table. And you're going to be invited to come and eat, eat the bread, eat from, or drink from the cup. Um, we're going to pass those out in a minute. But I want you to think about what that means for you as we come. And we're going to do one thing, another thing a little differently. Is I'm going to invite you to come and get the elements. And then I want you to hold on to them. And then I'll say the words. Because while we're having you come forward for the elements, I have, I have one more thing I want to share. It's a video of, that's based around the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. I've already quoted it. And let me just give you the quick story. The video kind of shows a story in a modern retelling. I think it's an amazing story 
of how, how God holds on to us through our struggles and doubts. And the guy who wrote is Robert Robertson. As a young man, he came to faith. He was kind of a rebel, but then he found Jesus, and it changed his life. In fact, he even became a pastor. And as a young man, he wrote the, the, the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And you'll hear the words for that. But it affirms God's goodness and, and trustworthiness. And then something happened. We don't know what. This is in the 1800s or 1700s. We don't know what happened. We just know he left ministry. He, he seemed to have walked away from the faith at some point. And then as an old man, he gets in a stagecoach. And there's a young woman in there, and she's humming a tune. And it so happens, it's the very hymn that he wrote. And it reminds him of, of the truths that he himself had declared. So we want to invite you to come and, and get the elements. Please hold on to them because I want us to partake together. The, uh, the ushers will kind of lead you through this if the elders would, would come forward. And we will have them up at the front. We also have one, one of our elders will rove around. If you have difficulty with, with, you know, if you just like them to be brought to you, we're happy to do that. So Will will have the, the rover. So just signal to him and he'll bring you communion. Otherwise, as the ushers lead you, if you would come and receive, um, come and, and we'll distribute the elements as we are ready. You can start the video.